Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house, 
for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth, and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. all kinds of people in the world. Um, there's a 58-year-old Aussie by the name of Peter Hoare, H-O-R-E, um, who is known for his attention-seeking stunts that interrupt and spoil public events. Some of you might have come across this guy. He's done such things as interrupt the Australian Open by running out onto court. 
He's run onto the track during the running of the Melbourne Cup. He gate-crashed the funeral of pop star Michael Hutchins. During a World Cup soccer qualifying match between Australia and Iran, he ran onto the pitch and cut the Iranian team's net. Many think the resulting delay was a turning point that allowed the Iranian team to regain their composure and go on and win the match. In 2007, he ran against Kevin Rudd as an independent in the Queensland electorate of Griffith and polled over 2,200 primary votes as PM Howard. More primary votes than what some of our current senators received. And he wasn't a dual citizen. Because of these and other stunts, Peter Hoare has been called a serial troublemaker by the ABC and a well-known serial pest by the Sydney Morning Herald. Most of us struggle to understand what goes on inside of the mind of a guy like this. What makes someone like him want to draw such attention to himself? It obviously makes him feel important to be around famous and high-profile people, even if he upsets them and others in the process. But why? Why is he so spectacularly driven by the desire for recognition? Well, it's probably for the very same reason the rest of us shrink from the spotlight. Like the rest of us, his heart is deeply defiled, corrupted and misdirected by sin. The only difference is he seeks recognition by association as a way of compensating for a sense of inadequacy to help boost his confidence. While we try to boost our confidence by disassociating ourselves from things that won't make us look good. So we wouldn't do the very things he does for the very same reason he does them. We don't want to look bad. He thinks by doing these things, being associated with people, he will be associated with fame. Whichever way you look at it, the core motivation deep down is self. Here in Exodus, chapters 3 and 4, Moses has a very close God encounter and he struggles with it big time. He really struggles with God's call on his life. So much so that it, that it nearly interrupts and spoils the whole occasion because of his extreme reluctance to obey. In fact, God gets very angry with him. And it wouldn't be the last time in Moses' life that God gets angry with him. Psalm 103 verse 7 says, God made known his ways to Moses. But this didn't make Moses a perfect man. Hebrews 11 lists him amongst the heroes of the faith. But it doesn't catapult him into another plane of human being. In fact, he's listed amongst the heroes of the faith specifically so that we can follow his example. But not everything about Moses' life is a good example to follow. But what we do find that is an excellent, excellent example for us to follow is Moses learned to hear and to serve God 
in spite of himself, which is what faith does. Faith takes us out of ourselves to trust another, namely God. This is precisely what we can learn from this burning bush episode. We see here God commissioning Moses as the one who will lead his people out of Egypt. So let's have a look at this, uh, this chapter because I think it's so instructive. It's, it's an important encounter, so there's basically two chapters devoted to it. And it centres around, a, if you like, a conversation between Moses and God. And things begin on a seemingly ordinary workday for Moses. He's out in the desert looking after Jethro's sheep. Jethro also went by the name Rule, which means friend of God. He was a priest in the land of Midian. It's interesting that the Midianites were descendants of Midian through Keturah, who was Abraham's second wife. After Sarah died, Abraham took another wife, Keturah, and she had six sons. One of them was Midian. So these were distant relatives, if you like. And it's, Midian is in what we would now call Saudi Arabia. It appears that the Midianites have retained some knowledge of the God of Abraham because Jethro is a priest of Midian. But sadly, that would change. We know down the track that Gideon would fight the Midianites because they were attacking Israel. But it's worth remembering that we never know what may lie down the track in our lifetime or in the lifetime of our children. If we walk with God and teach our children to walk with God, there can be some very, very surprising God incidences, not just coincidences, coincidences of God's choosing. We saw it in Exodus 2, 16, when Moses met Jethro's seven daughters who came to draw water for their father's sheep. More than likely, when Moses chose to flee to Midian from Pharaoh, he had some idea of being descended back through Abraham. He, after all, he wrote uh, the law, the Torah, these first five books that contain a whole lot of genealogies. So it's probably was in the back of his mind, fleeing to Midian, he might find a favourable reception amongst some distant relatives. Little did he realise that he was going to marry the daughter of a distant descendant and become a shepherd in a strange land. You never know what is going to happen in life. It really bears paying attention to what God might be doing with the choices that you make in life and expect God to do some things that are way beyond anything you could ask or imagine. One little thing that sticks in my mind in my life is I will never forget a number of years ago riding on my bike in a bunch, having a conversation with a guy. We were both on the front. He was a doctor at the LGH and he was going to church because of his girlfriend. He was going to the Reformed Church and he, and he, he said, look, tell me, there's, there's just one thing about church I don't get. And I said, what's that? He said, the resurrection. 
He said, I'm a doctor and dead people don't rise again. He said, I, I can get why we sing hymns, I can get why we read the Bible, but I don't get how you can believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And there ensued a wonderful conversation with this guy about the centrality of the resurrection. That's the heart of our Christian faith. I did not know at that time that he was almost engaged to the girl who is now my son's wife. That relationship broke up and, and he uh, you know, subsequently went elsewhere and my son Andrew linked up with him and now we have little Elle and you have no idea what is going to happen down the track in some of the conversations and events that happen in life. And this is the kind of thing that is unfolding in Moses' life. He's out in the desert going about what he thinks is an ordinary work day when he has a God encounter. Look at it. Moses sees a very strange sight, steps forward for a closer look. The Lord calls to him out of a bush that's burning without being reduced to ashes. Tells him to stop take his sandals off because this is a God event and it's holy. I'm just so, I can't let this go by. It was an ambush, an eye ambush. Um, uh, imagine Moses' surprise. He's, he finds himself speaking, talking with a burning bush that's calling him by name in the middle of the Arabian desert. He's, you think he is, he probably says to himself, Am I dreaming? Do I have heat stroke? Should I have sucked the leaves of that tree, that last tree I was under when the sheep were grazing? What is going on here? He's never encountered anything like this before. I don't know that anyone's encountered anything like that since. But Moses found he wasn't dreaming. When this voice in the burning bush called him by name, Moses, Moses. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses just, he falls down, hiding his face because he's afraid to look at God. God had turned up in his workaday world in the Arabian desert in a burning bush. Now, if you look at what Verses 7 to 9 tell us it's so instructive, it's very revealing. God discovers that unbeknown to him, during the 40 years he's been away from Egypt, God has been active. God has seen the suffering of his people in Egypt. He's heard their groanings and cries for help. He's remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. He's concerned about the suffering of these people and he has come down to rescue them. That's the whole purpose for turning up in this burning bush. I have come down to rescue them. So far, so good. God's not forgotten his people. He has a plan. He's putting the plan into action. Go God! Deliver him, God. Do your best, God. You can imagine Moses being excited. But what Moses hears next rocks his world. It threatens his secure family-based work. 
looking after his father-in-law's sheep, steady income, safe job. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses goes, whoa, Lord, no, not quite, I've got to think this through. We've got some talking to do about this. So it's very instructive, Moses doesn't say, but Lord, what about these sheep? He says, but who am I? His immediate thought is about himself and his sense of adequacy, or should I say, inadequacy. Until verse 10, everything's manageable. A few surprises, some interesting sights, but nothing too personal or challenging for Moses. But the audacious scale of God's commission for Moses to rescue the Israelites from the world's superpower nation, Egypt, after 40 years of living as an escapee from there and being on their most wanted list is way beyond anything that Moses is prepared to face. Probably only Noah could really have understood Moses at this point and the level of his anxiety. Remember what God said to Noah. The world is wicked, I'm going to flood it, build an ark, get yourself and your family into it and take with you two of every kind of animal on the planet. Except Genesis 7.5 says, Noah did all the Lord commanded him. While Moses tried to wriggle out of it. Moses questions God and says, who am I? I can so relate to Moses' self-doubt. Who am I? It's instinctive for us as sinful human beings to look first of all to our own strength and our own adequacy and our own ingenuity to try and make things happen, especially when we're entrusted with a challenge. If we feel it's too big for us, we just go, whoa, I need to back off here. This this is too, too big to handle. God has never asked me to save all the animals on the planet. He's not asked me to deliver a nation out of a superpower nation, but he has called me to be a faithful husband, father, pastor, citizen, friend and neighbour, yet I've found myself struggling to cope and very much doubting my own abilities. I don't think I'm alone in this room. The way sin has affected us is we look instinctively to ourselves for the capacities to do what God requires of us. So have you ever been discouraged by feeling you're not coping, by sensing that something's just too big, the hill's too steep, the the challenge is too great, what lies ahead of you is just unbearable for you? Then in in many, many ways, you're in an excellent position to identify with Moses. What Moses and you and me have to learn is Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Sounds simple and easy. The challenge is in the detail of actually doing that. 
we must discover this truth the same way Moses did by by shifting the focus of our hearts from the instinctive who am I to the great I am, to God. And that is the heart of what now unfolds in this conversation. God is now in a process of showing to Moses, yes, Moses, I've called you to do it, but I've not asked you to do this in your own power and strength and wisdom. I'm going to go ahead of you. I've come down to deliver them. I've heard the cries of these people. I will, will, will make your way straight. I will sort things out. I'll give you the strength. Just trust me. And so let's look at this conversation, if you like, between Moses and God, because we've got so much to learn from it. So when he says, who am I that I should go? Look at God's answer. I will be with you. Not maybe with you. I will be with you. When, not if, you've brought the, children, the, the people out of Egypt, you will, not maybe, serve me on this mountain. So God, in, in answering Moses' question, is actually promising that he will do this. When you've brought these people out, you will serve me on this mountain. You would think that would be a great encouragement. God reassures Moses with this promise. But Moses' eyes are still fixed on himself. Look, at, look what it says in verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what is his name, what then shall I tell them? He's still very much grappling with how he's going to handle this, how he's going to sort this out. Now, at one level, that's perfectly understandable. We, you know, I think they're, they're good questions to ask. It's just that Moses keeps getting in the way of trusting God because all he can see is the enormity of the challenge, just like the height of the walls of the city of Jericho or the height of the inhabitants of the land were like grasshoppers in their sight. All he can see is, I don't know how I'm going to do this. In that context, God says, I am who I am. The Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God was revealing something essential about his very nature to Moses through this. It's not about who I am, but about who he is. Moses had to discover that his default has to be not who am I, but who are you, Lord? Yes, you can. He's the great I am who will always be with us. So we see this same character revealed in Jesus, our Lord and Messiah. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. We see it in the great I am's of John's gospel, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the true shepherd. I am the true vine. I, I am the way, the truth and the life. How, how do you go? How do I go? actually looking at God and taking this on board that he is our I am. 
He will be and he will do what he will be and what he must do. The power resides with God, not with us. Moses was then told to do a number of things, all based upon God's character as faithful and true and a promising God. Look at verse 15. Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers appeared to me. The elders of Israel will listen to you, verse 18. Verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians and Pharaoh will let you go. Verse 21, and I will make the Egyptians favourably disposed toward this people so you will plunder the Egyptians. The basic pattern we see is because of me, you will. Because I am who I am, you will be able to do what I've called you to do. Out of who God is, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. That's the lesson that God is embedding into the heart of Moses. And it's a lesson of faith that all of us today have to take on board. Not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but to your name be glory and honour and praise. It's not about how powerful, ingenious or capable we are, but it's about God and his faithfulness. He who promised his faithful end will do it. He who's begun a good work among us will complete it. It's about getting our eyes off ourselves and asking who am I onto him, the great I am, and realising he's our strength, he's our life, he's our hope. But still, um, Moses is slow of heart to believe. He's pretty much like us. He had another question that's bordering on an objection. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? Now, whether what lay behind that was, I'll be left looking like a fool, or whether, yeah, I'll be faithful, Lord, but uh, who knows you know, whether they're actually going to respond. But God has actually said they will listen to you. So there's something deeper going on inside of Moses here and we're starting to get more towards the core of why he's got a problem with this. So the Lord then performs a series of signs designed to convince Moses by an audio-visual lesson, if you like, that he who promised his faithful end will do it. So he turns Moses' rod into a snake, then back into a rod. He makes Moses' hand leprous Then he heals it and he instructs Moses to turn water from the Nile into blood. Now Moses would have known he did not have the power to do those things. It had to be God working through him. So God was giving Moses a a first-hand trial run lesson about trusting him that he will be faithful and he will do it in the strength of God. But in the face of an avalanche of evidence, Moses still remains unconvinced and unbelieving. Now this is a guy who's listed in Hebrews 11 as a hero of the faith. I take great encouragement from this. Verse 10, 
Harden your servant, Lord, but I'm not eloquent. I'm too slow of speech and tongue. So he's coming down to it now. He's, he's really being honest with God and he's saying, I don't have what it takes, as if God didn't know that. Moses knew he was testing God's patience by now, but it's so hard to believe when his eyes were still on himself. So the Lord directs Moses' attention not just to a sign or a promise, but onto his very being. Look what it says in verses 11 and 12. Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Trust me, Moses. Look to me. Moses is still struggling. He's still not convinced. So God's promised, God's given examples God's given him signs and personal wonders. Then the Lord's anger starts to burn against Moses. Verse 13, Moses says, please send someone else. He just says, I I don't want this commission from you, Lord. He's digging in his toes. He says, not me, Lord, someone else. The Lord gets angry with him. So what was happening in the bush that was burning starts to happen towards Moses. There's burning anger in God towards Moses. God's holy, fiery anger had been lit. But the Lord restrains himself, and like with the bush, he doesn't consume Moses, but he certainly addresses Moses. And the... The facts start to come out. God's already got this in hand. He's already organised for Aaron, Moses' brother, to come and to greet him. And Aaron's really eloquent. Moses had been away from from Egypt and from Israel for so long, 40 years. Maybe he's uh, he's been speaking a different language. Maybe Maybe his English is rusty. Maybe his Hebrew is rusty. Maybe his Dutch is rusty. You know, whatever language he speaks, it's, it's, it's rusty and he thinks, I can't do this. And God says, Aaron can, but it's really not about Aaron and it's really not about you. It's about me. I am with you. So God's plan is not going to be thwarted by Moses' unbelief. If Moses won't do it by relying on God, then God will bring his brother in to help. And between the two of them, the job will be done. Aaron will go with you, you will speak my words to him, and he will speak to the people for you. So God is big enough to accommodate to Moses' objection, but he's still not going to let Moses off the hook. And then we find the wonderful phrase in verse 18, then Moses went. He goes back to Jethro. He tells him what he's going to do. Hands in his resignation. Says, I've got to catch the first camel train back to to Egypt. God's given me a mission. I'm reminded of Jesus' story with a question in, in Matthew 21. What do you think? 
there was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Even if we obey God, dragging our feet, at the end of the day, we've still obeyed God. and He knows that. But if we promise, 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 and don't do it, then we have not obeyed. No matter how eloquent, no matter how earnest, no matter how sincere, sincere intentions to obey will never make up for tardy obedience. Tardy obedience will still win, hands down. Whatever else we might say, Moses went. Remember, it's always better to obey God in the end, even if you disappoint yourself with how you've arrived at that place. I'm sure Moses, on the camel train back to Egypt, had plenty of time to reflect on why did I not listen to the Lord? Why did I have to let him get so angry with me? What, whatever the reason, because of the depth of his self-centeredness and his unbelief, still God won the day. That's the important thing. Is there something God wants you to attend to? Even if you said no to begin with, I encourage you, listen to the example of Moses. Learn from him. The point, the whole point of this passage is that I am, is the gracious and compassionate God, abounding in such mercy and loving kindness that he will supply the grace to do whatever he asks us to do. Learning to rely on, on this fundamental aspect of God's nature is the very heart and soul of faith. That's what faith is about. It's learning to trust God to take God at his word, even if the way we arrive at that place is by twists and turns and kicking and screaming, as long as we eventually get there. To hear and respond to God's calling will require a new heart and a new mind that's alive to God and to God's will and intentions and plans instead of being fixated on our own limitations. Peter Hall can teach us about this true faith. Although he seeks the wrong kind of attention, that of famous people instead of God, in all the wrong ways, breaking laws and being thoughtless and disrespectful, he is absolutely correct in realising that the true significance of his life lies beyond himself in the company of another. He's got that bit right. He understands who am I and he's doing something about it. He's going to others who appear to be great. But we need to go to the greatest one of all, the great I am. That's where Peter's got it wrong. 
If we sought the company and the pleasure of the great I am with half as much diligence as Peter Hoare seeks the limelight with the rich and famous, we would go from strength to strength in our faith. Will we do anything to be associated with God's greatness because we know we're poor in ourselves? Or are we so proud that we're actually constricted by what others think about us? That won't look cool. I'll just give you a, a little example. Uh, a few years back we were at Coles Bay on holidays and uh, it was quite a number of years ago. Our youngest son Matthew is about 10 and we, we're walking along, we're going to the general store from around the corner where we were staying at, at a holiday shack. And Matt was quite content to hold my hand, we're walking along the street, but the closer we got toward the shops, the further Matt drew apart. And until in the end, he's saying, Dad, Dad, let go of my hand. That's not cool. That's not cool. You know, he didn't want to be seen to be associated you know, with his dad holding hands in the public eye. It was okay when he didn't think anybody else was looking. And it's so like that with us. So like that with us. To hear and respond properly to God's calling, we need to be unashamed about being associated with God. We need to seek his company, seek his face, call unto me and I'll answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Moses learned to hear and serve the Lord in spite of himself, which is what faith does. That's why he's listed in Hebrews 11. Not because everything he did, did was perfect, but because despite his own inadequacies and doubt and, and unbelief and limitations, he went and obeyed God. That's precisely what the Lord wants us to do. Faith isn't pumping ourselves up to greater effort. It's reaching out to the great I am to trust God in our weakness and our insecurity. It's looking to God for the power to overcome and to obey. And ultimately, the one we reach out to is Jesus. He's the one who's overcome death. He's the resurrection and the life. He's our hope. He's our strength. So by the end of that extraordinary working day, Moses is on his way to obeying God. I wonder what, what is God doing to you or going to do to you when you're at work tomorrow or even in your retirement? Or maybe it's during your family life or on holidays. Is there a challenge that you sense God is calling you to, an obedience to scripture that God is challenging you with and he's saying, trust me now in this. I will do it. Are we convinced that no word from God will ever fail? Do we know we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength? Will we strenuously contend in our family life and ministries with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in us? Like Moses, have we come to know that God saves and God alone? Not because of righteous things we do, but because of his mercy. 
that he delivers us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he pours out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. That's the gospel. That's our hope. That's the point of this passage that God wants us to take home today. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that you are our all-sufficient God. We declare that there is none like you. We thank you that in the gospel you give us all that we need to live a godly life. We confess our chronic failure to lift our eyes beyond our own limitations, above the fickle opinions of others, to you, the everlasting I am. Help us not to be too confident of ourselves to listen to your counsel, nor too ashamed of our failures to repent 70 times 7. It's you we need in all our sinful frailty, for your grace is sufficient for us. It's your strength that's made perfect in our weakness. It's your presence that must go with us or we will perish. It's your promises that we must rely on or we'll grow weary and lose heart. It's your will that must be done on earth as it is in heaven, not ours. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be all the glory and power and praise. Thanks be to you, O Lord, for the victory given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is all our hope, all our wisdom, all our life and strength. And it's in his precious and holy name we pray. Amen.